The following audio is from Sand Hills Community Church. More information about Sand Hills Community Church is available at www.sandhillschurch.org. We're glad you all could be with us today, and uh, today we are going to be tackling a, uh, a tough topic. Uh, but this is, it's just one of those things that, that as a Christian, having been given the Word of God, we're reminded that, that we are responders to truth, we're not inventors of truth. And so we have to wrestle with what God has given to us. And when we think about heaven, we think about paradise, we love those things, but we have to understand there's another side of that as well. Thank you so much. All right, so um, as we talk about this, uh, I want to remind you of some things. When it comes to death, to judgment, um, to, to where our souls go after we die, that this, this is all real. This is not something, we, you know, we come here, we get a nice talk, and we get some nice music, it makes us happy, and we go home feeling energized for our week. Like, if that's all we're doing, this isn't worth it. Uh, but if this is really the eternal truth of the universe handed to us by God himself, our creator, uh, then this is worthy of all of our devotion, all of our attention. And so that's why we gather together. There are inviolable laws of the universe established by God. And when it comes to the fate of our souls, this is not something where it's like, oh, you believe this, you believe that. Oh, that's good. Like, no, there's one God who's revealed one truth, and that's the one to which we respond. And so this morning, we're going to talk about this one topic, uh, hell, and we might call it this, the uncomfortable truth, the uncomfortable truth of hell. Now, whenever you talk about hell with somebody, they're going to want to ask you something like this, that like, like why would a loving God ever send people to hell? Why would a loving God ever send people to hell? And now here's the presupposition. I'm loving, and I would never do that to anybody. And so therefore, if God is more loving than me, he would certainly never do that to anybody. But the problem is your humanity gets in the way. You're not God. You're the created. You're not the creator. How you define love is actually probably different than how God defines it. And how you define grace and mercy are probably different than how God defines it. And so we find ourselves, again, having to subject ourselves to what God has revealed not what we wish he believed. Uh, let's, just, let's just tackle the idea for a second. A loving God's too good to send people to hell. Uh, you know, we have a justice system in the United States, and my presupposition would be that most of the people out there are genuinely people of goodwill and good intent. And some of these end up as our judges. And when somebody commits a crime and it violates the laws, the rules of our uh, government, of our uh, communities, that when they appear before the judge and they violated these laws, the judge has to render a sentence. And when that judge renders a sentence and sends that person away, maybe to prison for a period of time, nobody sits back and says, that judge is immoral. He just convicted somebody of a crime. Okay, wait, back up. They committed the crime. And this is something we as a society have decided we need to do to enforce order. And so none of us complains that criminals get sent away. Uh, and then there are some criminals who commit deeds that are so horrible that the judge finds that he has to give them a very harsh sentence, and whatever that may be. And, and again, there's nobody sitting back going, that, he shouldn't be sentencing people. Like, no, good judges carry out their duty. That's how justice works. Evil gets condemned. So if we just back ourselves up a bit and go, well, that's what hell is. It's, it's like this. Hell is no more horrible than the prisons that we have in our society today. We have prisons kind of because we have to. Right? Well, that's why hell exists. It has to. And really this way, hell satisfies justice. That's what it's for. I hope that'll make more sense to you as, as we go forward. But let's start with this idea. 
God does not delight in condemning the sinful. He, does not, he doesn't love that at all. Uh, we'll go back to an Old Testament passage here from the book of Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So this is the Lord appealing to his people. He's given them the law of God, and they're rebelling against it. And, and, he, and he said, if you rebel against this, I'm going to have to punish you. I already said that I would do that. So in some ways, God is really just, he's a good parent. All right, right. So as a parent, if, for those of you who are parents, now if you're a kid, you're on the other side of this. So you get the experiential aspect of it. Uh, yours is arguably less fun. Um, although it's not much fun for the parents either. But that is that where the parents say, you have to do this. If you do not do this, this is a, is a rule I'm giving to you in our house. You have to do this. If you do not do this, there will be a consequence and you will not like it. Now, if the kid rebels still, they're daring you to punish them, right? Now, the biggest danger for you as a parent is if you do not follow through on what you said you would do, right? Because that shows something about you, and then the kids got you, right? Because they know, oh, mom and dad don't ever do that. And then you're going to raise one of those kids that people talk about, right? Uh, so let's just be careful. And, um, and so if you're one of those children who's been on the receiving end, and you're like, I don't like it when my parents discipline me. You know, like good parents discipline their children. And one day you will too. Right, so that's that's kind of how this thing works. Now, I get, I get. There's some difference there between you know eternal uh, consequences, but the the concept you get is just a parental concept. I'm reminded of Second uh, Peter three nine. I love this passage. Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's ultimate desire is not to condemn the wicked. His ultimate desire is that none would perish. But, but if they don't, in this life, choose to submit to him, then they suffer the consequence for their decisions. And, and many people do. Many people struggle with the concept of hell. And I would say if I was to sum up a biblical concept of hell, just a short definition, it would be uh, a, a place of eternal and conscious um, discipline, eternal conscious punishment, that's how I, would, I think I would sum that up. It's a place of eternal conscious punishment. Uh, and it's not from an unloving God. It's from a God who, when he realized we could not save ourselves, sacrificed his own son for us. Not really theologically speaking, a God who put on flesh and stepped into our world to bear upon himself something he did not want to have us bear. Okay, that, that is nothing but divine love. That's God's grace and love shown to us. Um. Dr. Wayne Grudem wrote this book that we use in our Christian uh, Sandhills University class called uh, Christian Beliefs, and um, he makes this comment in it. The Bible's descriptions of hell are difficult to read, and they should be deeply disturbing to us. Although it is hard to think about, the doctrine of hell is so clearly taught in Scripture that there does not seem to be any acceptable way to deny it and still be subject to God's word. This idea that, like, like, I don't want it to be true. It's just, it's in there. And I, I don't create truth. I just, I'm, I seek to understand it. And so because that's my role, that's what I do. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he makes this comment. Our Lord speaks of hell under three symbols. First, that of punishment. Second, that of destruction. And thirdly, that of privation or exclusion or banishment into the darkness outside. As in the parables of the man without a wedding garment or of the wise and the foolish virgins. The prevalent image of fire is significant because it combines the idea of torment and destruction. Now, it is quite certain that all these expressions are intended to suggest something unspeakably horrible. 
And any interpretation which does not face that fact is, I am afraid, out of court from the beginning. This comes from C.S. Lewis' uh, book, The Problem of Pain. And so, you know, like, they're both saying the same thing. Like, it's just a tough topic. None of us, none of us likes it. It is just, it is true. This discipline of God, this eternal discipline for an eternal uh, grievance against an eternal being. That's, that's what this thing is, is just so hard to grasp and yet something we have to understand. Now, there are biblical descriptions of hell, and so I want to go through some biblical descriptions of hell. We're not making this up. Uh, we want to go back and we want to unpack this. And so to start with, I'm going to go back to the passage I used from last week. And so if you have your Bibles handy, open up to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, and again, we'll be in verses 19 through 31 as we encounter some of these biblical descriptions of hell. Now, Luke 16, 19 through 31 is the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I said last week, and it, it still remains true, that that this is a picture ultimately of the intermediate state, the intermediate state. So here's, here's kind of how eternity works. When you die from in this world today, anybody that dies right now, they immediately go to, um, to a place that will reflect their ultimate destination. So to those who are headed for eternal paradise with Jesus, you already go to paradise with Jesus. That's where you go. You start there. And if you're destined for an eternity apart from Christ, you go to a place of torment and suffering right away. Now, that's your first stop, so to speak. This is what we call the intermediate state. Then when the Lord wraps up time, what he's going to do is he's going to resurrect everyone, gather us together for judgment, and then after the judgment, we go to our final state. And the final state will be the ultimate fulfillment of what we talked about last week, the recreated uh, earth and the, the skies and the universe um, and, and this new Jerusalem that comes down and God has his residence here on earth. Uh, and then the other people will go to this, uh, what in Scripture, we're going to look at some definitions here, but this place known as um, you know, a lake of fire and eternal suffering and, and things like that. So um, that's, that's where we go, and that's kind of a preview of how the afterlife works. So let's do this. Let's look at Luke 16, and I'm just going to read the passage for us, and then we will we'll take some leaps off of this as we study it to, to get some understanding. Luke 16, starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Mm, look at that imagery. Uh, the poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from there to... Uh, uh, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All right, so this story of rich man Lazarus, again, it's a picture of the intermediate state. It's the preview, so to speak, of what's to come. 
but there are principles that play out in here, and so those are what I want to kind of tease out if we, if we talk about this. Okay, so one thing we have to pull out right away is when the rich man's interacting with Abraham, Abraham says to him, hey, listen, you received your good things in life, Lazarus received bad things. Now, on the other side, you receive bad things, he receives good things. Now, here's the, the problem. If you look at that and you think, oh my goodness, so that means if my life is reasonably good, does that mean I'm headed for hell and that everybody who's having a horrible life right now is ultimately headed for heaven? Now, you could argue, well, we're kind of all having a horrible life right now. Okay, so that, I get that. Or you could say this, you know, I, I live in reasonable comfort. Like, I have AC in Columbia, South Carolina. Like, I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, the rest of my life may be tough, but, but uh, I can get some relief from the heat, and I'm doing it. Okay, so it doesn't work that way. That's not, that's not what it's all about. Really, uh, when we think about this, this, this topic, the what we do, the what we, what we don't do, we realize that what Scripture uh, plays out for us is that it is not on the basis of things we do or don't do that gets us saved. It is, it is the things that we do and don't do that reflect our relationship. And relationship is what determines destination. So for those of you who are parents again, you want your kids to act a certain way because you know it is best for them and it's best for you as a parent. That's order in your home. Your kids need to act a certain way. Those are just rules of our family. Right? So that's, that's how it is with the Lord. But, but with the Lord, what we find is when we... we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that the rules God gives to us are not burdensome. They're a delight for us to do. And so the idea is that those who have a relationship with Jesus find themselves doing by nature things they might not have ordinarily done because they are children of God. It is not that those things earn us a place with God. We reflect those because we have a place with God. Now, the corollary to that is that those apart from the Lord who have not submitted themselves to Jesus Christ or believe in him as their Lord and Savior, there's a whole bunch of things they do and don't do that reflect the fact that they don't have a relationship with the creator. That's how this thing works. And I'll tell you a place where you see this is you see it at the end of Matthew 25. At the end of Matthew 25, there's a reference to this eternal judgment, and it talks about the sheep and the goats, right? The sheep and the goats. And if you're familiar with this story, at the end of time, we're kind of all divided. Sheep go on the right side of God, and goats go on the left side. And I don't I don't really know how this works. And the good news, I think, is that we don't have to figure out eternity. Like, when you get there, there are probably going to be people directing you, right? It'd be like at Disney. You go in the line. They're going to be like, oh, you, you come over here in this line. You go over here in this line. They're kind of dividing things out. You're like, oh, we're going to get on the ride now. So there's something about that, I'm sure. And at one point, you're going to be divided into a line, and you're going to stand there, and then the Lord's going to turn to you. And he's going to say, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was a stranger you invited me in. And when I was in prison, you came and visited me. And he gives this list of things. And then we sit there listening to that. And we think, you know, Lord, I, I really, I don't remember doing that for you. I, I mean, I did that. I like, sure, I, I did all sorts of stuff like that. I just didn't know I was doing that for you. And, and Jesus, oh no, when you did this for the least of the people out there, you did that for me. You're like, oh, okay, I didn't, I didn't know that. And then he turns to the goats on the left. And he says, hey, listen, the corollary to that is, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. And when I was a stranger, when I was lonely, you didn't, you didn't talk to me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And, and they're going to say, oh, what? We didn't, we didn't know that was you. I mean, we know we didn't do stuff like that, but like if we didn't know you needed, we'd have done that for you. you know? And he says, no, no. So, and at the end of that, you look at that and like he condemns the one and he accepts the other. And you're like, okay, was that, was that on the basis of what they did and didn't do? And, and you have to understand what they did and didn't do reflected their relationship. It's not about what they did and didn't do, because otherwise you get in this concept of we just have this big cosmic balance, and if I'll just do more good than bad or more bad than good, that's where I end up, and it's not that at all. It is that your relationship with or without Jesus Christ reflects what's really going on, what's really true 
of your heart. And so that's kind of how I would say that plays out. These different lifestyles have nothing to do. They're just a reflection of who they are. Now, one of the things we see right away in the rich man and Lazarus is that he is already suffering in torment. He has a physical body. He is suffering in torment. Uh, he wants relief. And so then this idea of, of fire and flame is a very common idea in Scripture when it comes to talking about hell. And uh, maybe we, we could look at this. So when Jesus talked about hell, he typically used a word called Gehenna. Gehenna is used as a description of hell 12 times in the New Testament, and 11 of those uses are by Jesus himself. Now, Gehenna references this place. It's a reference to this place called the Valley of Hinnom. And uh, the Valley of Hinnom had a horrible reputation um, because of what the Israelites began to do when they began to follow pagan gods. And uh, we see a mention of this in Scripture. Go to the next slide. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. So when, when Israel began to drift away from its belief in God, they began to adopt pagan gods. And in particular, they followed the pagan gods of Molech and Baal. And when they began to worship Molech and Baal, Molech and Baal demand child sacrifice. And so they would come and they would offer their children, burning them in fire in this valley of Hinnom. Can you imagine? They would come, they would burn their children so their lives would be better, so that they would be blessed, so that these gods would be honored. And, and the Lord speaks to them and says, I never would have said that of my family. They, they're never supposed to be sacrificing their children. So that was an abomination to the Lord himself. And so this idea is that the valley of Hinnom became associated with the place where bodies burn. And so when Jesus is talking about hell, he uses the, the word Gehenna, referencing the Valley of Hinnom, because that's the place where bodies burn. And so this idea that, um, that hell has you know, flame and these kind of things, that's just a, that is a common understanding even of the Lord himself. Okay, so uh, now at the judgment, let's talk about the judgment just a little bit. So a couple of weeks ago, when we were at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we talked about this particular judgment for God's people called the Bema Seat Judgment. And, and Bema really just references the place of judgment. That's a, that's a seat the governor would sit on when he rendered a verdict. And the Bema seat judgment is where the believers stand. Like at the end of time, if you love Jesus, uh, you come and there is an evaluation on everything you said and did and thought. Uh, like just let's be clear. There is a judgment coming for you that Jesus is going to examine everything you did and said and thought. Is there anybody here that's uncomfortable already? Yeah, right? <laughs> like, I really hope that's a private thing. I really, I like, I don't want y'all knowing my stuff and I don't want to know yours. You know, I just, I would love to have a private conversation with Jesus and be like, listen, I know it's horrible. Just, you can give it to me. And he gives the rundown. And then at the end of that though, for those who have faith in Christ, but, but you're my child, you are forgiven, you know, enter into your reward and we'll be able to do that. Praise the Lord. That's what I'm looking forward to. Um, but, but this beam of seat waits for us. Now there's another type of judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, there is, there is some debate among scholars whether the Great White Throne Judgment has everybody present and the believers just are a part of that thing, or if it is really just for those who uh, have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. But either way, we see it referred to in Revelation chapter 20. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this idea that there's a judgment at the end of time that has to do with works. Now, we said at the Bema Seat judgment, when we're judged as believers, that it might be that there are degrees of rewards that come for greater obedience and less obedience. You know, there's the, maybe some disparity when it comes to reward. But at the end of time, really, it doesn't matter because everybody who loves Jesus gets paradise. And when you put that title on it, like, I don't even care. I just want in. Like, if I get to paradise, I don't care what perks of paradise I get. It's still paradise, right? Uh, but then on the other side of that, there's a corollary as well that perhaps it is uh, that there are degrees of punishment as well. And we don't even know what that looks like. Everybody's in fire. Everybody's in flame. Everybody's suffering. We know that. Uh, but there is some reference in Scripture to some are beaten with few blows and some are beaten with uh, a lot of blows. Uh, I just know this. I don't want to be beaten with any blows. And so whatever that is, let's just, we'll let the Lord take care of that. Let us take care of ourselves, understanding what he has for those who love Christ. Um, part of this makes me, makes me think of this too. Have you ever had this, this dream where you're being given a test, but you forgot to study? You know, Or you show up at class or work and you're in your underwear? Like you ever had that kind of, the, the weird dreams, right? <laughs> They're almost all weird. I, I actually have a recurring dream. This is absolutely true. I have a recurring dream that I stand up to preach on a Sunday morning and I forgot to prepare. Yeah, so yeah, so does the ministry know that. Yeah, yeah. So you get up there and you're like, I don't, I don't have anything, you know, like how embarrassing. Let's, everybody turn to Genesis. Let's just start at the beginning. Uh, we'll just read for 45 minutes and you can go home. And uh, yeah, so that's one of my recurring fears. So here's the thing. There's a literal version of that. So the literal version is this. We live in a world today where there's this, this anything goes mentality. And you want to be a Christian, actually, almost, if you want to be a Christian, that's the one, only one almost it seems like is actually off the table. You, we don't want you being that. Um, but if you're a Muslim, if you're a Buddhist, you're Hindu, whatever it is, it's like, you know, it's all good. Everybody, everything's good, you know, kind of thing. There's this, that's just a big myth. And then at the end of time, when we stand before God and everything's revealed, like this is all, like there's no doubt anymore. This is real. It's a God thing. It was always about Jesus. It was always about the word. It was always about that. Then it's like this, now you're showing up for judgment and you're not prepared. Like that, that horrible dream that we have will actually be experienced by many people at the end of time when they realize this was real. It was all real. It really was a Jesus thing. It was really a Christian thing. Like I thought it was a whole big, and it's not. It was, it was just this. So it's really a horrible, horrible moment. And, and then as we're reading through this, one of the things he mentions, Abraham mentions this. Hey, you know, I know, I know you don't like where you are and you, know, you, you don't like seeing where this guy is. But you need to understand, there's a chasm between us, this huge valley. You, you can't come here. We can't go there. This thing is, is fixed. And so one of the questions we may wonder is, um, can, they, can they see over here? Can we see over there? Like, is there, is there like we're standing across a hill from each other? And it's like, it, it doesn't really look like that plays out in Scripture. I, I'll tell you what we do see in Scripture, regardless of how that plays out. Um, we certainly see this, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Like, you get one shot at this. Regardless of how this whole thing works out, how it all you know, plays out, you get one shot. And you got to figure it out in this life. If you don't figure it out in this life, it is over. And this whole thing, that after you die, you go to judgment. Listen, nobody sticks around on this earth. There's no such thing as ghosts you know, going around here. There's no, like, I had a woman tell me one time, and she was a Christian lady. And, and she was saying something like, you know, God is so gracious. You know, he, he lets my mom who had passed, he lets my mom still speak to me. 
You know, my mom is, I still feel her comfort. And I'm like, ooh, that's horrible. That is absolutely, because your mom is not here. Like she is not here, she is gone. You are not feeling her. That's all make-believe, you know? Like, and here's the, here's the corollary that's even more scary. If you're sensing spirits, those aren't people. Those are demons or they're angels. And if they're demons, you better turn to the Lord. And if they're angels, just let them do their thing, right? They just, we're not, we don't need to be involved in all of that. But there's this, this is one thing. You get one time you're in, out, and then you go to judgment. You're not sticking around. Uh, here's something else that people get confused about. So when it comes to talking to people about Satan, demons, and hell, there's a lot of misinformation out there, which you would expect from somebody who's known as the father of lies, right? So he would want you to think he is all-powerful, he's equal to God. Uh, and, but here's the thing. If you track down a lot of what we believe, and I mean as a, as a world or even as the U.S. about Satan, a lot of it traces itself back to the Middle Ages, particularly when this guy named um, Dante wrote this thing called the Divine Comedy about 1300, the Divine Comedy. And if you're thinking, oh, I like comedies, I'd like to read that. It's not that. that is, <laughs> it's a completely different book. And, um, but in there's just all these ideas and these myths about hell, what hell looks like, and these circles and all this kind of, like, that, none of that's real. And then the Middle Ages kind of got a hold of that, and then you end up with this goat-like man, and he's running around with a pitchfork, um, and then, you know, um, you, you've got this idea that, uh, as we see in the cartoons, that, um, that hell's almost, you know, kind of, it, it's horrible, but maybe goofy, and Satan's kind of, you know, it, you see, you're shaped by movies and, and cartoons and, and this history and stuff. Like, none of that's real stuff. That is just, the only place we can find real stuff is in here. And one of the worst places to find your information, and this is one of my pet peeves. I really hate this. I've said it in here probably every year as I've talked about this, is the near-death experience books. Near death. They are the worst. Don't ever read them. They are horrible. They deserve to be in the trash. Like somebody, here's the idea: somebody that dies, clinically dies, like legally dies, we, we, and then they they come back to life. Doctors bring them back, and then they have this vision of something that occurred. So a great instance: a few years ago, there's this kid. So this kid passes, literally did die for a few minutes, and then he comes back, and then a few years later. He writes this book, you know, with, with other people. They put this thing together of, of things that he, he saw and he heard and he experienced. And, and people go read the book and there's a movie about the book and uh, everybody loves it. And, and then he comes out later and says, you know, I actually lied about the whole thing. Like, I, yeah, I know because I read the Bible, right? Um, because here's what you see in these books. You see that like, oh, I got there and I saw my family and it was lovely, and I, I saw a unicorn, and I saw um, rainbows, and I, I felt there was music everywhere. You, let me tell you what's missing in those books. Jesus. A focus on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who defines life. What, he gets an add-in mention at the end of your book? Like, see, that's how you know they're, they're all pretend. These are all fake books. They're, they're people who want your money. That's what they are. Don't ever read those things. I'm just, I'm doing you a service. Uh, the others, uh, there's another one of mine. So a few years ago, somebody said, no, Pastor, you need to read this book. Uh, it's about this man who, um, he, uh, he had this dream. God gave him a vision of hell. He, he literally took him to hell for like 30 minutes. And then, um, and then after that, he, he brought him back uh, so that he could write a book about it. And, uh, and let us know how horrible it is. Now, I hated to tell him, like, I think we've already got a book. It's, it's actually a good, it's a bestseller. We can just trust this one. But, um, but here's it. But the guy really wanted me to read it. And so I said, okay, I'll read it. And uh, so I started reading the book. And from the first chapter, I knew it was all make-believe. Because in his version of hell, Satan is running around. Demons are running around with pitchforks and putting people in cells and all this kind of thing. Here's the problem. Satan does not run hell. God runs hell. It's a prison 
built by, established by, run by God. It's not, it's not run by Satan. It's not run by demons. And, and even more so, Satan and demons aren't in hell. They're here on earth. And when they finally get judged, they end up in this eternal lake of fire. So it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And that's why we've got to make sure that we consign ourselves to what Scripture says. Because what Scripture says is horrible enough, uh, let alone bind into some of this make-believe. And, uh, and this idea of whether we can see or not see across the valley, it, it doesn't matter. But if we do see, one thing you'll notice is that Lazarus doesn't see people in hell, right? He doesn't see the, the rich man in hell. Now, you see the rich man perhaps seeing Lazarus, but if he does, that's all he's seen is Lazarus. It's not like he's got the, the whole you know, panorama of, of everything in eternity. Uh, so if there is anything like that, you know, that's, it's a, a particular thing. But that's one of the dangers in a parable, right? A parable really is only intended to teach us one or two main uh, concepts. And so we have to be careful about how much we try to draw out. Uh, but even if you think we can see one as a one-way mirror or whatever, that's it's fine. It's not going to affect your faith, I don't think. Um, but here's what's curious. Did you notice this? Did you notice the concern of the rich man for his family. That, that's curious. What's also curious in the midst of this is he isn't sitting there shaking his fist at heaven. He's not cursing God. He's not like, how could you do this? Abraham, how could you? You know why? Because he realizes, I have gotten what I deserved. You know, people aren't in hell saying, oh, I want to go back. Jesus, give me another shot. No, they know. I'm a sinner. I got what I deserved. But then he does think about those left behind. He says, hey, you, Abraham, you could send Lazarus to go tell him. And I, I love what Abraham says. Abraham says, hey, listen, they've got the Bible. And, and the rich man saying, no, that's, that's not enough. Like somebody has got to go back and tell them. And Abraham said, well, listen, if they're not going to listen to the Bible, then you know, that's kind of on them. And so I, this, this concept that, that really the, the world has the word of God, regardless of our testimony, regardless of our obedience, regardless of anything we do, they got the word of God. They can either listen to this or reject it, but this is, this is sufficient, which does remind you, by the way, of the sufficiency of the Word of God, that this is, this is all that we need. And, uh, and this guy is, is freaking out, and what he wants is he wants somebody to rise from the dead and tell people, well, that's exactly what Jesus did. And people aren't any more inclined to believe in him now than they ever were. I mean, shouldn't that be like our trump card? You know, so when people are coming to you and they're like, yeah, but the Buddhists say this, and the Muslims say this, the Hindus say this, and so y'all are kind of saying the same thing. And you're like, no, no, we're not saying the same thing. Our guy rose from the dead. And that should be where they're like, oh, your guy rose. Well, then yours must be the right one. You're like, I know, that's what I've been trying to tell you. Like, ours, our guy's back, right? And so that should be the, the finale. And then we know it's not. And that's, that's really what Abraham is saying here. That's what Jesus is illustrating, actually, prior to his own death and resurrection. Uh, and so I am reminded of this thought, though. So I get asked to do funerals you know, often, which you would expect. Um, I get asked to do funerals often. And every now and then, I will get somebody who will tell me, now, hey, pastor, you need to know that, that so-and-so was not a religious person. And I'll be like, oh, okay, I, I got this. And I know what they're thinking. Like, oh, okay, okay, good, good, good. It's because they're thinking like, okay, good, he'll kind of do a non-religious kind of service and like, you know, honor them. Like, oh, they weren't they a great person. No, you know what? I, I just remember Luke 16. And like, I'm looking at that casket thinking, hey, you know what? I know. If you could get a word to me right now, you'd say, preach Jesus. So you know what? I'm going to honor you. And, that, and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to preach Jesus. And I do. I just get up and I give him Jesus. I get full on everything. And I remember one family before uh, I went in, they were trying to tell me, okay, pastor, you know, uh, we, they weren't really religious, so I just want you to be aware of that. And I was like, okay, can I? I mean, and, you know, <laughs> you have to be careful. Funerals are a tough time. Everybody's, everybody's struggling a little bit. I get it. It's emotional. Uh, and they really don't want the fun put in funeral, which is, I got I to gotta make sure I don't do all that. I got I get, that's my own struggle. Um, but, but like this one family was telling me, like, hey, they weren't religious, pastor. We just want you to know. I said, okay, listen, can I just remind you of something? 
you asked a pastor to come do this. I have one job, right? That's what you're getting, right? You're gonna, you're gonna get a peek into eternity as I understand it to be true from the scripture. If you didn't want me doing this, you should have gotten somebody else. It's too late, I'm here. And so they, they were like, okay, well, can we just, would you at least not give an altar call? I said, deal. I, won't, I will not call anybody forward to the casket to give their lives to Jesus, even though I think that would be so powerful. But yeah, I will, I will not do that. So I didn't do that. But I did preach Jesus and gave people a chance to respond. So the, the idea is this, that, that that's what people would want, even if, even if they don't really believe that and died without believing that. Uh, something I also point out is we study the scriptures on hell. There, there's no mention of fellowship in hell. You know, because something you'll hear people say over the years is like, well, if I go to hell, at least I'm going with my buddies. That's a really weird idea. You know, like, yes, I may be burning in torment forever, but if Ted was there, I'd be happy. You know, like, that would, <laughs> yeah, so it, it, no, that's, no, that's a horrible idea. Or I, I literally heard a guy say one time, you know, well, uh, I may be going to hell, but at least if I'm in hell, I'll be drinking beer with my buddies. I, okay, first of all, Dude, the beer's in heaven. You know, that, that, we keep the good stuff up there, man. You don't, you don't get that. It's, no, it's, it doesn't work that way. There's no fellowship. It is isolation. It's torment. It's horrible. You don't want that. Uh, let's finish with this, though. Here's, here's some good news. May I even say great news that comes from Romans chapter 8. Great news from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hey, look, can we, do this? can we do this one together? Let's do this together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. It means God doesn't want, to, he doesn't want to punish us. And so here's what he did. Because he didn't want you to endure this horrible thing, he took it on himself when he stepped into this world in the form of Jesus Christ. And he absorbed all of this pain, all of this sin, all this consequence, all this judgment he took on himself. And then he just says to us, all I need you to do is respond in faith. Submit to me as your Lord and it can all be yours. And, and a number of us, hopefully everybody in this room has said, yes, I want that. I will follow you. A God who loves me that much, absolutely. I would be a fool not to do that. But then others are like, no, I don't want that. And so then God says, well, you have chosen then your own punishment. You've chosen your own discipline. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for what you have given to us. This gift of this great news that Jesus Christ himself took upon uh, the cross uh, a burden we could never bear, enduring a punishment that, that if we do not get that satisfied in this lifetime, we step into the full consequence of it in the next. And God, you're not, you're not evil, you're not unloving, but you are just. And, and your law has to be satisfied. And so may it be that, that as many as can hear this right now would come to the point where they would confess that they're sinful that they would understand what Jesus has done for them and who he is, and that they would willingly submit themselves to the grace and the love of God extended through the Savior who died on a cross and was resurrected again. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Sandhills Community Church. Feel free to share this with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information, please visit our website at www.sandhillschurch.org.